Hello and welcome to Geek Warning. I'm Dave Rome, and this week is a little different from the regular. James had previously promised an episode from Eurobike, but there was a change of plans, and that'll come next week. Instead, I've got Brad Copeland back. Brad, welcome back to Geek Warning. How are things at Hush Money Bikes in Pennsylvania? Uh, hello, thanks for having me back, Dave. Uh, things are going great, you know, summer rush, a lot of acti- activity every day, and... Um, just trying to stay above water over there. But uh, yeah, we're doing a good job. So all is well. How's it been working on uh, more than one person's bike? <laughs> oh, man, I forgot how hard that was. Um, yeah, I, I was privileged enough to, for the most part, have one bike to worry about. And um, now the thing that I always liked about bike shops was sort of the surprise every day of what might w- wander in the door. So it's um, definitely keeps you on your toes and forces a little more creativity than uh you know, the same bike day in and day out with uh with the same components for a year or two or more in a row, you know. So mm-hmm. the consistency is not there, but uh maybe it's a little more stimulating sometimes. A bit more challenging at times. A little more challenging at times. I learn more too each day. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh I guess yeah, this week we're we're recording this a few hours before the doors of Eurobike are opening. So as a result, we're a little early to tell you all that's new. Still, I think there's plenty to talk about. We've got a new tool that Brad and I have expected for a while. There's something fresh from Wolftooth. I'm keen to hear Brad's thoughts on the cross-country tech from Leah Gang, and, or lack thereof, should I say. And <laughs> yeah. plus, we have some things on our mind. We have a PSA. And if there's time, maybe even a reader question for Brad. Okay, on with this show. This app is made possible because of the generous support from our members. Memberships start from $12 per month or save 30% with an annual payment. For more information, head to escapecollective.com forward slash join. And I'd also like to give a special thank you to our LIFA members. These LIFA members uh, supported us from day one before we even had a website and they made a huge donation to making Escape Collective a reality. So this week, I'd like to thank just a handful of you. We've got Jonas Mueller. Jonas, thank you so much. For anyone interested in what Jonas is up to, he's actually uh, owner of a contract engineering firm, uh, Bicycle.Engineering. Great stuff. Someone I know, John Groves in Melbourne, long, long time tech nerd. I remember being a teenager and hanging out with John uh, or aka Grover on weightweenies.com. So great to have your support. Thanks, John. Another friend of mine, Alan Miller from Tasmania. Alan and I used to do uh, weird things on single speeds about 10 years ago. So thank you for your support, Alan. Stuart Voicey from SCV Imports. That's an Australian importer. They do a bunch of great things like Bomb Track and Chris King in Australia. Thank you for your support, Stuart. And Andrew Threffel, another Sydney local. Uh, He runs uh, or is part of Catfish Designs, which is a custom clothing company, family business with wife Lana and Lana's mum. So thank you, Andy. All right, let's get into it. So the biggest news coming from Eurobike, which again, haven't opened their doors yet, uh, of course, seems to be all e-bike related. Brad, I don't know if you've seen any of this stuff yet. It sort of uh, came out overnight, but uh, biggest news there is that uh, Pinion have a powertrain. So they've integrated a motor and a gearbox in one enclosed system uh, called the motor gearbox unit. Have you seen anything like that? I have not seen that yet, actually. That's, That's news to me. 
Yeah, it's sort of, uh, it seems like it's a little while away, but it could be quite game changing for for the e-bike world. Uh, and I guess they're not the only ones. So the other interesting one was, uh, you might remember this one, is Driven, which is like that offshoot uh, drive shaft brand from Ceramic Speed that inter- yes. that appeared at Eurobike a few years ago. Yes, it seems they've been fairly busy focusing on the e bike world, and they've sort of shelved the idea of making the the world's most efficient uh, analog drive system. And yes. rather, they're making uh, something similar again, like a, an all in one e bike drive unit drive drive train. I guess it's. Uh, using like a planetary gear system. It looks quite novel, I have to say. Um, but yeah, that one kind of uh, I found interesting because that's a company that had gone pretty quiet for a few years now. And uh, yeah. it seems like they, they haven't gone anywhere. They've just been very busy. So uh, yeah, that's something that I'm intrigued by. Uh, it turns out that their, their analog drivetrain that they're working on, um, they got it to a point where it was actually functioning and then they priced it out and it was going to be about... $14,000 for a drivetrain. And oh, uh, at that point, they realized that um, maybe the engineers were given too much of a, a free leash. Yeah, for, for free being relative, I think, in that sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually was wondering what whatever would, if anything, uh, become of that. So, so I was at Specialized at the time when they were working on that. And I was, you know, there was some time spent uh, developing a bike a specialized frame that could uh, accommodate that system. And after all that, I was hoping to see something. Um, so yeah, maybe, it's an, maybe it's this, inappropriate for specialized to, uh, to then evolve to e-bikes as the entire brand is uh, heading in that direction, it seems, these days. Yeah, I remember when Specialized was involved, they did like they opened up their wind tunnel to to Driven and they, they obviously they made that bike around it. Um, yes. Yeah, there was quite a close partnership there. So, but yes. yeah, it was a quiet few years for that system, but uh it's coming back. So they're probably a company, uh, Jason Smith, who, who used to run Friction Facts, who mm-hmm. uh, is someone I've worked with uh, a lot over the years for information. Uh, so he's still their, their chief technology officer at Driven. So we might end up getting him on the podcast at some point. And even cool. though it's e-bike, just to, just to hear what he's up to and the problems that he's trying to solve for. And, uh, and yeah, where his, where his mind is, because he's, uh, he's obviously got a, a lot of things to share. Um, and then, yeah, other other news from the e-bike world is uh, Bosch have entered the mid-power game with the Performance Line SX. So that's uh, that's a category that I'm personally interested. In. I'm looking at getting myself a an e-mountain bike, and yeah. it's changing pretty quickly. Every every few months, I look again, and there's there's something new and exciting which stops me from buying in. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that that sounds like a, a pretty cool system. That's uh, sort of that around that 60 newton meter mark where a lot of people are playing which allows you to have a, a lighter weight all-rounder e-bike so um keen to see where that goes yeah i'm kind of kind of eager to see i know there's been some teasers from our friend gustav uh danger as he's known to most most mm-hmm. folks he's got a special e-bike project a scott uh lumen based ultralight e-bike um that'll be an interesting one too yeah have you seen it uh, I've seen some little little sneaks here and there, but no, I have not seen the the final product. So I think that's going to be unveiled kind of in the probably next few hours, realistically. Uh, probably yeah. first day of, of of Eurobike. I'm sure he'll have that thing front yeah. and center and all over my Instagram feed as well. Yeah, I think he uh, may be building two of them 
I think oh. there was there was talk of him building like a weight weenie version and then like mm-hmm. a, a practical version. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. it will be yeah, interesting to see how light he can get that though. I, mean, I know. I was going to say it, it might be comparable. I mean, that bike was already quite light. It was a pretty impressive um, bike when Scott released it. Anyway, I'm not necessarily the world's most enthusiastic e-bike fan, but um, some of the newer ones and some of the technology, like what you've just described, is it's kind of starting to pique my interest. And when I left Sea Otter this year, I think one of the most interesting things just conceptually that I saw was uh, the Shimano system that sort of marries the entire DI2 system and motor with an automatic shifting capability, which yeah. it wouldn't surprise me to see as a, I, I would expect something you could enable or disable as you prefer uh, on a regular DI2, real, real normal bicycle, uh, for lack of a better term, for a, you know, what you would call a regular old mountain bike these days. For sure. Um, but uh, what was interesting was that it actually worked well and shifted when you wanted to, uh, which mm. any attempt I'd ever seen for automatic shifting in the past has been kind of a circus and never really seemed <laughs> to do it when you wanted it and always did it when the opportunity to shift had already come and gone. So yeah, um, but yeah, I'm eager to see what else pops out in the next few days. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, yeah, as far as Eurobike goes, Eurobike for the last few years being the German-based show, it's world's biggest bicycle trade show. Uh, yes. it's It's been very e-bike focused, very cargo bike focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't seem to be changing at all because that's mm-hmm. where the, the European market is these days. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, those those products that we just mentioned are probably the biggest news out of the show, but uh, I'm sure James and, and Ronan, who are on the ground, will have... Uh, We'll be able to f- find enough other things to to discuss next week as well. I'm sure but, it's I'm sure it's there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also released, and this one's probably uh, rather exciting for you and I, Brad, and maybe a handful of other people who work on wheels regularly, and uh, maybe a few tool nerds. But uh, Abbey Bike Tools have made their biggest tool yet: the Turing Stand. Yes. Uh, how would you describe this? Well, it's a magnificent structure, first of all, just the machining and the quality of, of uh, manufacture and the subsequent price tag are uh, extremely impressive. Um, I think those of us who have some familiarity with Abbey tools already kind of know what to expect and know how well thought out things are before they make it to production. So I, uh, I have not had my hands on it yet. Um, I've been Neither. fortunate enough to, to be an ambassador with Abbey tools for five or six years at least now. And um, so I have had some conversations with, with Jason and a couple of our other ambassadors, uh, the likes of which uh, include John Hall, who's Aaron Gwynn's mechanic and um, a few other guys who are shop based in the United States or some demo guys in the United States. And, um, you know, guys who use tools in different applications and all provide their own feedback to Jason who somehow manages to synthesize the ridiculous things we say and produce a product that kind of blows all of our minds at the same time um, <laughs> as everyone else when they finally appear. Uh, so I kind of had an idea of what was coming, but it's still, um, you know, seeing it in real life and in a more or less final form, it's quite impressive. And the fact that it's all rolls on bearings and uh, it's sort of the precision that you come to expect from Abbey Tools is obviously there, and I uh, I expect it to be a game changer for those of us who can bite the bullet and uh, or maybe have a shop who's willing to invest in something. Yeah, of that, I mean, it's, of that quality. Yeah, it's it is quite the investment. I mean, we're looking at US uh, one thousand four hundred and fifty dollars as a base price, and then there's uh, 
there's options above that. You can get uh, Matuccio style gauges, and then there's one with digital gauges that, that works with a pretty sophisticated and pretty clever, uh, I guess, measuring system um, that you – it's sort of auto-zero, so you don't have to then adjust the the dials all the time, which is, is pretty cool. It has a foot pedal for recording data, which is also yeah. very neat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, from that stand, uh, it's – it seems to me like when you talk about wheelchairing stands, you get a lot of opinions, as you sort of just alluded to. Like everyone kind of has their personal favorite and their way of working with a Turing stand. And it kind of feels like Abby might be catering to more than one desire with the way it's gone about things. So they've got, you know, the they've got the the wheel dishing centering alignment uh yeah, alignment gauges, I guess, which which mm-hmm. stay centered to the stand. And then there's also mm-hmm. like a more movable pivoting arm that you can put anywhere against the wheel right. to use as like a secondary gauge. Uh, yes. So what's yeah, your preference? That, well, uh, among the other things I may have suggested or requested be featured here, that was one of them. And I always uh, had problems when, whether by design or lack of design or wear and tear and kind of... Uh, Loose tolerances, let's say, uh, Turing stands I've had in the past. You had one side or the other that was sort of the drive side and needed to be referenced as like the, you know, the, the spot to measure dish from. Um, so that to me was kind of a, a no brainer. Uh, just have one that was all, always in dish. Although, of course, we have a few examples in the industry of wheels that are, I mean, I, you know, maybe asymmetrical, um, relative to, what what is normal? You know, how do I even put this into words? But like a Cannondale Cannondale SI yeah, exactly. Wheel. That, yeah. That's where I'm going with this. So perhaps that's the, you know, the auxiliary kind of caliper reference point might might be useful in such a scenario. Um, but also just a simpler way to which he's used. I think using kind of a cone shaped insert into a through axle that can kind of take any common axle diameter and not needed an adapter or anything unusual to just quickly mount it right into the, into the stand, which was something very simple in theory, but somehow hasn't really existed commonly in other brands yet. Um, so I'm excited about that. And, um, I'm a geek for high quality things. So in general, I was pleased to see, you know, cartridge bearings all over the place and a lot of clever features that just ensure that things are going to be super tight tolerance where you're not working around, a jiggly fit like some of the park stands i've used recently um mm-hmm. where you're kind of where you're kind of always readjusting the caliper because the the thread is a little bit you know there's a little bit of of a loose tolerance i, I would say so sure. um i'm pretty excited to see it in in real life i expect expect it is quite a hefty thing even though it's machined from aluminum but i'm curious to see kind of what it, what it feels like in real life to use and how intuitive it is, but I have a feeling it's going to exceed my expectations in in every way. Yeah, I uh, I'm keen to get your thoughts on Turing stands while we're on the topic. Just Turing stands for for home mechanics. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what would you? Is there something light and relatively affordable that you may have traveled with before that you, that you liked? You know, I've never traveled with a Turing stand for okay. better or worse. Uh, I. I've always had, um, so, you know, I was always been based in the United States, but traveling with teams that are based in Europe, uh, at least for World Cup action. And we have T 
steam trucks with a chewing stand inside. So the, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the necessity for lightweight compact, uh, chewing stands is, was perhaps not as significant, but, um, the, the, the so-called kind of ghetto fix that we would, we would often do if we were in a pinch somewhere was just to simply zip tie as the caliper reference point, uh, a zip tie, a stiff enough one that it was relatively stable and use the frame and chew it on the bike. Um, if you're simply doing kind of rough trues at home that don't have to be perfectly in round and perfectly dished and perfectly, uh, you know, perfectly trued, but are more or less kind of like a home job, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, just working on your own equipment. That's been a, just a super cheap, obviously hack that, um, works surprising. I mean, you know, it works quite well. Um, you're of course not going to get anything close to the precision or the ability to measure and record and all that stuff that you have with, uh, yeah, Jason's Jason's new revelation, but um, nevertheless, that's been my my home hack, which, for better or worse, I have quite a number of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, it's uh, I mean the zip ties is hard to go past for the for the value for money, but it's <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I've always for home mechanics thought like the feedback sports do yeah. a, a chewing sound. It's a one sided arm. Yes, I was going to say that one too. I've never used yeah. it, but that's the one that. I would use, I would say, if I needed something. Yeah, it used to be. It used to be so awesome, like when everything was quick release, because the quick release would hold it in. And there was quite a few years where it became quite terrible because they didn't really have a great solution for mounting a through axle wheel in it. But now the latest iteration of that stand comes with a a pretty good thread together through axle adapter. It's it's not the quickest stand to use. Like you'd you'd be pretty annoyed by it if you were in a shop with that. But it's. but yeah, for home use, it's it's probably the one of the better options I've found. Um, so anyway, for anyone listening that doesn't want to spend fourteen hundred dollars <laughs> on a on a cheering stand, then uh, Feedback Sports probably gets my vote for uh, at the opposite end of things. So yeah, I was in the shop today too and thinking about this very cheering stand um, as I was using another one uh, and using it to not just true some wheels, but also while I had the wheels off, clean them uh, and thought how reluctant I would be to clean a wheel or maybe even, maybe even true, uh, or rather, uh, glue a tubular, uh, yeah. tire, which I use, usually do using the chewing stand as my older, um, and sometimes drip a little bit of glue, uh, in the process. And most shops you'll, if you go into them, at least road shops, they'll be a little essence of tubular glue somewhere on the chewing stand. So, um, Definitely something I would want to have something besides the Abbey Tool chewing stand in my shop just for the dirty jobs that, uh, like so many of his tools, I don't want to even get dirty because they're so beautiful. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny to spend so much on on a product like that and then probably still need to hold on to the old one for yeah for the for the jobs that don't deserve it. So yeah, exactly. It's uh, some might say it's almost too nice, but yeah. uh, anyway. All right, let's uh, let's move on away from the Turing stuff. Let's. Uh, I'm keen to just talk quickly about uh, this little one by chain guide. So we've seen this being used by uh, Jumbo Visma, uh, Wolf Tooth. They're a sponsor of the team. Uh, they have the Lone Wolf. It's a it's a forty dollar road and gravel chain keeper for for one by rings. Uh, it comes in three mount options. So there's there's different heights depending on I guess your chain ring size and also how high the 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 brazon mount sits in relation to your chainring. So they've got that mm-hmm. covered. 
Also, if you own a current generation Cervelo S5 like the team does, then they've got a direct fit mount for that for um, for error gains. Uh, but why I'm interested in this is it's kind of returning to a conversation we've previously had on the the Geek Warning podcast, which is the drop chain of Roglic at uh, at the Giro in the mm-hmm. the penultimate time trial. He was uh, in the lead, and uh, you know, looking like he's on his way to the Giro win, and his his chain on a one by chain ring uh, dropped off, going over somewhat of like a a water drain and there was panic and he still ended up winning, but uh, there was a lot of talk over what had caused that. And uh, at the time I'd heard from a source that was in the car saying it dropped off the chain ring. Um, but what's interesting is Wolftooth uh, have said that the team confirmed that it was actually off the back of the 44 tooth cog of the cassette, which is also why he was able to get going so quickly. Cause he just ripped it back out of the, off the back of the cassette and put it back on and off he went. And that, uh, and yeah, and that this uh, chain guide apparently, according to the team, when it's installed correctly, the chain cannot be taken off. What do you think? <laughs> well, uh, it's a good idea for sure. Um, we always, we always had the same approach on the mountain bike side. And back in my specialized days, uh, we were fortunate enough that a very small Czech based Czech Republic that is based company. It seems like a one man show would make custom chain guides for the epics, um, which mounted using like an expanding wedge type system inside of, uh, the main pivot, uh, on the swing arm of the oh, bike. Nice. And it was quite a clever little thing, but, um, it was not a production item. And of course the bikes would be shown in photos and everybody wanted one. And, you know, they don't weigh much. They don't, they're not complicated to use if they're engineered well. And it's, you know, especially for guys whose livelihood it is to race bikes and especially ones who are capable of winning such races as the Giro. Uh, I think it's a extremely valid and relatively lightweight, simple product that doesn't really get in the way of anything. So I'm all for it. I, uh, especially on mountain bikes, you know, I think it's almost essential, even though the one by systems have gotten so good, there's no reason to risk something you don't need to. And on the road, you know, I think those guys are, especially in a race like the Giro, the surfaces are so different um, that you can't necessarily rely on smooth pavement or expect smooth pavement. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a great idea. And in fact, we just ordered a similar product from K edge to put on a bike for a customer who has a one by uh, okay. road bike set up just this week. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm in the, in the chain guide camp for sure. Yeah. So yeah, so this uh, this new Wolftooth one, I, I guess where it's different from other chain guides, including Wolftooth's own, they had one for for mm-hmm. cyclocross use before. Is uh, the team Young Visma had apparently requested something a bit more aerodynamic. So this is kind of just a almost a one sided. It, it captures the chain on like the the left hand, the inner side of the chain ring, and then on top, and then just by being close enough to the top of the chain. It, doesn't let the chain lift off so they therefore don't need the outer portion of the guide so it's quite minimalist um the other nice thing is that it's shim free so there's kind of like this this nice little expanding design that lets you adjust the chain line and then bolts it into place it expands into place so it's it's from what i've seen very quick and easy to adjust so it solves some of the you know some of the other chain guides on the market you kind of have to shim carefully into place and they can be quite annoying to set up uh, so it looks like a good product for 40 bucks but uh mm-hmm. but yeah i guess you're saying is uh 
when given the choice, you'd always run a chain guide with a, a one by. I, I I would say it. I also think that um, on a road bike too, you especially it's. I think there's some opportunity there, and it sounds like Wolf Tooth is maybe leading the the charge to have a pretty simple and minimalist one where you don't have to worry about the height of the chain relative to the chain guide at the chain ring, moving it all through suspension articulation like you do a little bit on a mountain bike. So you can really clean it up and make it quite a compact and tidy little little piece, I I would think. And um, it's nice to see somebody actually putting some real engineering thought into that, not just sort of yeah. re-engineering an existing product and clamping yep. it kind of roughly to a seat tube and hoping for the best. So mm-hmm. yeah, I like it. I'm 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 all for it. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. The only the only thing uh, I'm uh, I'm keen for that hasn't been released yet is the fact that they've got a direct mount for a Cervelo, which is obviously a team issue product. I'm I'm looking at my gravel bike, which has a removable front derailleur tab, and I'm just like, oh, I don't want to like put the the heavy aluminium front derailleur tab back on to then add this chain guide on top of that. I mean, that's just so wasteful. Um, you know, so so who knows? Maybe Wolf Tooth will have like 150 different products in future. Oh, that's for, what the bike everyone's, needs for everyone's is, gravel bikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all look subtly different with almost no way of determining one from the other until you mount it up and realize you got the wrong one. Yeah, I mean, like the UDH yeah. is actively fixing the the rear derailleur hanger woes yeah. of there being hundreds and hundreds of different rear derailleur hangers. So maybe maybe we could get Wolf Tooth to bring back the number of available products mm-hmm. by by making various direct mount chain guides. Yeah, say, say what you will about the transmission, but I, I would say that, and I like it by the way, just for the record, but that is the, the thing I like maybe even more is that regardless of whether you're using the SRAM tran- transmission products or not, uh, to see the industry accept one standard for something that's been a, a source of headaches, especially for those of us who've lived in the shop for a little number of years, uh, that's a that's a real win. So thanks to SRAM and everyone else who got on board for that one. But yeah, we'll see we'll see if K Edge can uh, undo what has been done already. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Wolf Tooth. Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure they're uh, not keenly looking at this uh, at the moment. <laughs> but uh, but hey, I'll I'll take one if they are. Yeah. Did you, Brad? Did you watch the the World Cup uh, Linger Gang? Did you tune in? Did you watch the racing? Yeah, I watched. I watched. Uh, most of it, yes, I, I would say. Yeah, I didn't get up quite early enough to catch the beginning, but uh, I watched the highlights of the beginning and the rest of it. Yeah. What did you think of the course? Um, that course is tricky. It's uh, especially for bike selection because it it's so steep and the the climbs are quite long. I would say it's the definitely the most sort of uh, favors the climbers more than any course currently on the circuit anymore. Albstadt was kind of the only place you used to see hardtails used i would maybe not even by the majority but at least in a a large number of large percentage of riders um with that no longer on the circuit leah gang's kind of the last bastion of uh hardtail use for a few riders and we saw a few of them there but even you know it's then you come back down it's super rooted it's often wet um a lot of times they have new sections of single track cut like just prior to the race happening. Uh, so it's not really worn in. There's no groove or, you know, obvious clear line choice, which is both good and bad because it creates a lot of opportunity for taking many lines and exciting passes to happen and that sort of thing. But it can make the setup a bit of a roll of the dice. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah. they got good weather this year. So that was, that was, I think, to the riders, uh, in their it favor. It, it was hot. Yeah, it was hot. But, um, but I think they'd rather it be hot than wet because that course is a pretty scary one when some of those descents are pretty, um, with the roots when they get wet and a little bit of slimy mud on top. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's sort of, it surprised me a little bit. Like we saw a few hard tails, as you mentioned, like, uh, Monomuth. Mitawelna, uh, Austrian rider, she managed to get herself on into second place uh, on the podium, which is amazing result. She was sort of one of the the more notable riders, I guess, to be on a hardtail, uh, a Cannondale hardtail. But yeah, everyone else seemed to be sticking with the the regular bikes. I'd say there were fewer dropper posts than what you normally see. Maybe, maybe on the men's side, I yeah. feel like the women the women are less prone to switching back and forth as much and are more, I mean, almost entirely, if not entirely the whole field riding a dropper post now. Um, the men still do on uh, these courses where you climb so much, they they will opt for one or the other, but I'm also in the sort of hundred percent dropper post all the time camp, even if it's a bit heavier. I think the, the, the safety in it, the, I mean, it's faster and even like flat turns you to drop it just a little bit is, uh, makes me feel more comfortable on my bike. So, um, certainly on the steep Rudy stuff, I think that measure of control is you have, I mean, for me, I have to have it now. I, I can't ride a bike without it. I was sort of <laughs> against it at first, kind of like I was with 29 inch wheels and yeah, both same. times I was very humbled and, uh, immediately upon riding it, uh, changed my mind. So, um, yeah, I did. I think also maybe it was Ann Terpstra, if I'm not mistaken, ghost, uh, rider who they were on a, I think it was her. I have to go back and check now. It was certainly a ghost rider because it was a ghost, uh, hardtail that was, they talked about in the broadcast that I've seen mm-hmm. before. It's, it has some engineered flex and some very curvy seat stays that, uh, facilitate that flex vertical compliance, but, um, is nevertheless still by all accounts a hardtail. Um, but there were, there were, there still were, you know, I would say over, overwhelmingly, it was a full suspension track, uh, for most people, at least by most people's estimation. And, um, and yeah, I was, I was super happy to see Mona there. Uh, I actually had her pick to win. She's pretty motivated to perform in front of her home crowd. And, uh, I think it was last, was it last year that she had a crash at the start? of the race got tangled up right off the start line before even the first climb before the first turn. And among other things, rip it was a uh, Cannondale with a lefty fork and managed to rip the caliper off the fork. Um, oh, it has wow. a slotted, a slotted caliper to, uh, for the, for the disc caliper to mount to rather than, you know, a hole that you run a bolt through. So it can actually come out of the slots and due to some unbelievable bad luck, it, it got pulled out. And, uh, so she had quite a affair in the tech zone and then put down some of the fastest laps of the race, but was so far behind that the result didn't really wow. speak to her, uh, capabilities that day. But this year I thought she, I was proud to see, you know, she delivered, uh, on expectations. Yeah. Yeah. The Austrian suddenly lived up to the whole, uh, home, home track, uh, you know, home crowd, um, yeah, cliche of uh, in the downhill winning what, totally. men's and women's. Yes, men's yeah. and women's. And L- Laura Stigger also in for third place in the women's cross country as well. So, yeah, um, another good showing for a young Austrian girl. And, um, yeah, it might be the best, the best, uh, kind of like home crowd result ever for a World Cup. I have to go back and check my notes on that. But, uh, yeah, probably to, to get that many people on the podium and that many wins. Uh, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. 
Is there any tech on the downhill side that you have spotted that you you think is really interesting that might be become more widely applicable, or is it? Uh, I'm well. I'm dying to know what's exactly underneath Loic Bruni's and Van Niles is. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a humongous uh, cover these days. Uh, it used to be kind of like a bag and sort of like didn't look so good. Now it's quite a clean little compartment. Um, for sure, there's some electronic Olin suspension products under there. I'm not exactly sure what those are, but you can see in some photos some buttons look like a almost like a PlayStation keypad on uh, the left side of Loic's cockpit <laughs> setup, where there's at least three buttons there to. Control. Maybe he's just, I was, I was, yeah. Maybe he yeah. is like, yeah. Maybe he's just game. a big fan of like Zwift, and it's that new Zwift controller. <laughs> yeah. that he just got yeah, mounted yeah. on the handlebar. True. Yeah, we'll see a release from Zwift next week for uh, some downhill simulation stuff for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would think uh, it's probably not unlike Formula One, where there's some preset kind of different setups that I mean. I used to work kind of alongside the downhill program when I was at Specialized. I was not directly involved, but was quite friendly with their guys and would go snoop around. And they were some of the first to pioneer a lot of that um, data data capturing, electronic suspension data capturing stuff. And it's pretty universal now, especially in the downhill side, um, you know, to strap some sensors to the bike that measure the, the performance and then go back and look at everything. So I would expect to see, you know, they're using that now to create kind of three preset modes for the suspension to work in. And he kind of is able to select among those and do it relatively, you know, easily without having to look at it too much. Cause you don't have a lot of time to look away from what's right in front of you on a downhill track. Um, so I'd be very curious to see what exactly that is. You can definitely see on the top of the fork that there's a little bit of wire and kind of electronic connections happening there too. So um, yeah, I, I think that that is, the electronic suspension and the data capturing capability is probably something that we'll see transcend all of the sport. It's already beginning. So maybe it's a good segue into uh, Nino Scherter's new new products on his bike, also on the cross country side. Yeah, we we mentioned that briefly last week, but I mean, what's mm-hmm. what do you know about it? That like it's obviously a flight attendant. It's it's looking very production ready, but uh, yes. do you know what it's? I guess what it's trying to achieve. Uh, well, it's it's. So basically, it's the same concept as what they were trying to achieve when they released it on the enduro side. Um, I was sort of shocked that it did not come out as a cross country product in the first place. Yeah, um, same. You know, it seems like that's like the perfect application for it. Also, you know, those bikes are kind of quite silly looking when they have so many cables with lockout switches, dropper post cables. If you're not using the electronic version, um, you know, brake hoses. So you have five or six hoses flopping around up there or hoses and housings. And it's quite a clutter and especially cable routing and cable friction um, is also a factor. So I think that sort of simplifying, so to speak, the bike with some electronic aids to, to manage the suspension at least is a good idea as long as it works. And it seems to have worked well for him at Linzer Hyde. So I'd say RockShox is probably on track with that being close to production ready. I know that we have some, um, we've always had some exclusivity with SRAM when I was with the Scott SRAM team, uh, getting some of their products first with like a bit of an agreement that we would be the first to have access to those. Of course, Nino is a good person to hand anything to if you want to see good results immediately. Uh, so he's a, he's a pretty good bet in that department. So, um, you know, and it, 
the way that those products function with a completely open, fully active mode, a fully locked out mode, and then the kind of in-between mode where it's kind of a a little bit more compression damping that firms everything up for pedaling purposes. That's kind of been Scott's bread and butter for years with their twin lock suspension system, which does the same thing, but with a mechanical actuation. Um, so for me, that was the perfect platform to, to use it on. And I expect probably by world championships, you'll see a lot more riders using it, but we have, um, with, you know, probably some exclusivity that has been agreed to on the front end. So. Yeah. Okay. Stay tuned, but yeah, I bet that's going to become yeah. something everyone has access to by the end of the season. Yeah, you're you're mentioning uh, like the data acquisition from the specialized mm-hmm. team and how they're mm-hmm. one of the first to do that, and it's now it's now pretty common in the downhill world for mm-hmm. for them to use it during like time training and mm-hmm. uh, and that that sort of you know early course practice, I guess, to get a feel for the course. And a lot of teams will will use this technology. Have you ever seen it being used in cross country? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, okay. it's super common. Uh, well, it's more and more common, uh, these days too. specialized. If you look at some of their own cross country riders during practice as well, you'll see the very same types of capture devices. Usually theirs is mounted somewhere along the seat tube of the frame. There's like a zip tied box that has obviously the, you know, hardware inside that does whatever recording and measuring is taking place but there's little uh little devices kind of strapped from the fork top of the fork crown to either the steer leg or possibly the axle um and a similar one along the length of the rear shock that you know is kind of taking measurements in real time and providing that feedback so they're they're already using it um scott has been discussing how to use it and working with the company to do one because of the internally mounted rear shock it's a little bit trickier perhaps but not not impossible so there there's always been some interest there from the cross country side and it's starting to show up so uh with you know these tracks have gotten so technical in the last five or seven years maybe um it's kind of the same reason you rarely see a hardtail race at a world cup anymore i mean it wasn't that long ago it was like 2010 or so when i think when uh, Yaroslav Kulhavi won the first cross-country World Cup on a full suspension bike. Um, so a decade later, it's almost 100% of people using them at every race. And so the the suspension side of the game has definitely taken on uh, a significant um, level of importance, I think, among not just the racers, but the engineers and everyone who's thinking of these bikes in the first place. Um, that's I think uh, probably the strongest point of emphasis and, and perhaps why a lot of the bikes are starting to look kind of similar. Yeah. Too. Yeah. They're all landing at a similar design, yeah. aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Yes. With the exception of Scott. Um, yes. I guess the other thing like is that travel's increasing, right? Like, you know, for, for the last decade, everyone ran a hundred mil and, you know, a hundred mil fork and normally a hundred mil in the back as well. Maybe, you know, give or take 10 mil, but uh, we're seeing that increase. And I guess with that increasing, there's more scope to, you know, gain extra performance and and tweak the the settings. So I guess that that will open the door more to the, the data acquisition side of things. I think so, yeah. And it also allows you to run the suspension setup maybe a little bit softer than you would have on a shorter travel bike just yeah, okay. so, uh, because you're not trying to preserve all that stroke for the big hits anymore. You can actually run with proper sag, um, which, you know, as you 
up from the downhill side, they run quite a bit of sag into the, into the rear shock, well, into both the fork and the rear shock. Um, so that they have, you know, the ability for the bike to track over holes and ruts in the ground and, um, just basically to remain in contact with the surface as much as possible. And so, you know, when you're sort of compromising the setup or running it too stiff or running it with less sag because you want to have enough stroke for big hits on the course because cross country, you're on pavement to start climb up a steep fire road, then you bomb down parts of the downhill track to come back down the hill. You know, it's like you kind of need a pretty, pretty flexible setup uh, for pardon my pun, but uh, you know, to, to be able to do all of those things well. So with a bike with more travel and suspension, that's quite sophisticated compared to the early, the early stuff we saw in cross country. Um, I think that's, that's kind of the the next frontier for, for cross country bikes. And with the exception of maybe the Trek, uh, and then the new, the new specialized that, uh, just was released that, that have actually quite a bit less rear travel than we've grown accustomed to. Um, it seems everybody else wants more. And Scott kind of, there's a lot of talk about 120 mils being too much when it was released like two years ago. Uh, you know, and now it's like basically the normal, the normal amount. And Yolanda got some attention, um, in Linzerhide for racing a top fuel there, which had 120 mils of travel, um, as well. So, uh, maybe that's a little bit of a indication of that track, perhaps kind of having gone the wrong direction when everybody in the industry was trending towards longer for cross country use. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The rumor, the rumor is, is that that super cow, which is pretty sure like it's 60 ish mil travel. Exactly. Um, the, yeah. the next iteration won't be so short in travel. I, I would expect that to be true. Yes. And, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've been spending a bunch of time on the, the new specialized Epic World Cup, which is, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, their short travel version, sort of the hardtail replacement. And, uh, mm-hmm. let's just say I'm not convinced. So, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I would, I, I, have each at each race I've, since they released that bike, I've been quite interested to see who's actually get, is using it. Um, it's getting used here and there, but I would say, uh, let's say the team hasn't bought it, bought into it fully because so yeah. many of them, I think last weekend, Lindsay Hyde, I don't think anybody used it. I might be wrong about that, but it certainly seemed overwhelmingly that the team was racing on the Epic Evo with, with, uh, you know, 120 or at least 110 mils in the fork and, um, and also manual, manual suspension controls as opposed to a brain shock, which has been their bread and butter since, you know, my childhood basically. So, um, I think, you know, you see from the riders too that, uh, maybe what the industry thinks and what is really necessary on the tracks that they're racing, it's maybe not 100% in alignment yet, but, um, it's an interesting, interesting yeah. thing. Yeah, I think I think Leah Gang was pretty telling as well. Is that you, yes. know, you saw some riders select the hardtail over their full suspension bike, yet Specialized Factory weren't unanimous on riding their hardtail replacement bike. You know, a lot of them right. stuck to the the Epic Evo with the you know, as you say, the the remote manual lockout. So yeah, certainly certainly quite telling, and it sort of reinforces what I guess what I've been experiencing on the trail as far as. Yeah. It, it being a, a very a very sharp tool that's not great for cutting a lot of things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice, yeah. well put. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, all right, let's let's move away from mountain bike chat, okay. or perhaps we'll get back into it. Uh, I'm keen to hear what's been on your mind, Brad. What's uh, what's been occupying your thoughts, and perhaps. <laughs> 
maybe over the head of the family that something you can't, you know, it's perhaps uh, not worth talking about at the dinner table. Oh, gosh. Well, I know we always lament some of our own personal bugaboos that we encounter day to day, just you and I offline privately, not on a podcast for everyone to hear. But uh, <laughs> the, one, the one that's just been bothering me so much lately has been Road to Bliss. Mm. Um, Why? It's I perfect. Love it. what's, what's wrong? I, I love it in theory. I really do. But... It's just, uh, I think it's just because it needs to be such a lightweight system. I, I just think they're, it's just such a maintenance tedious thing to actually <laughs> have and, and just feel like, uh, your bike is going to be ready to go all the time. I don't know. I just, it's just trips me out because I just see these, you know, they sit for too long and you lose the seal and then you have to refill it with sealant because it's filled out because the depth of the tire is so shallow and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's just one of those things that it's been like 10 years or more since kind of started creeping into the scene. And yeah, it's, ba- it's basically the new standard, but I just, I don't know. I'm not convinced that it's right yet. I'm not, I, I don't know how to necessarily articulate my true feelings without sounding like an ass but um yeah i mean the industry's butchered it right like as far as an implementation they have truly made a mess of it so many standards that have come and gone or are still together simultaneously but aren't compatible with each other um you know tires are they hookless are they hooked are they compatible are they not what which ones do i have which ones are these it doesn't necessarily always even say you have to look up a chart online to tell what tires are compatible with your rims and then you have to look up what tires are actually available in the industry which you know we're getting better than we were in 2020 and 2021 when the pandemic was really hitting us super hard but i've been trying to get my hands on some 28 mil continental grand prix 5000 tubeless tires for like a year (laughs) literally for a year and we just checked today and now they're pushed out again until september for the next delivery at least at least to our distributors over here um that we use day to day we checked two different ones and same story so um you know it's just it's just a funny thing i'm not i'm not losing too much sleep over it but it's kind of like become a running joke uh for me and a few others in my circle who know how my brain works and my (laughs) preferences work i guess you'd say but uh that one's just just a, a funny one that's been throwing me curveballs left and right lately so it's just hot on my mind yeah what's uh i guess f- from a customer point of view are you suggesting people go road tubeless at this time or are you are you putting tubes in their wheels that see that's that's another another point of contention for me just inner inner turmoil because i want to suggest it because i know that when it's working well and everything's set up and fine it's definitely a superior system i mean we're even seeing that the fastest tires in the world now are in fact tubeless uh, at least for the you know there's a, a handful of tires that are measuring faster than anything that's tubular or anything you know that's a very high thread count clincher tire with the latex tube in there which has kind of been the sort of old fast setups and now they actually have fast tubeless tires that are faster than anything that's ever existed. Great. Love it. That's what I, you know, get out of bed for, but it's like, um, do I trust these people to 
<laughs> like go inflate their tires before they leave for a week and a half vacation just so that it has some in there to hold, you know, to like, to hopefully buy them some time that it's going to not like lose its seal. And then they come home to a puddle on the floor and their bike's sitting there and then they have to come back in. So it's like, yes, I do recommend it. I think it's great, but I just wish that there was some way that it could exist like that, but also not create like little headaches for people because the last thing that I want in the bike shop, especially is, you know, for someone who's paying God tires, by the way, or like a hundred dollars a tire now, which is sticker shock. I hadn't, hadn't seen the price of a tire in a while, uh, having oh, been yeah. on the race scene oh, for yeah, a number of years. <laughs> Whoa. And, um, so, you know, you sell somebody $200 worth of tires on a, you know, a couple of G's in the wheel set. And, uh, then if, you know, a couple, maybe 150 bucks to do the labor to set it, everything up and all the sealant and everything that you use and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, come back in two weeks because they parked their bike and then the whole thing kind of came undone. It's like, well, I feel like there's just got to be a better way out there. And I'm sure somebody is working on that as we speak. So I hope, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, they kind of, more or less got it sorted out for mountain bikes eventually. It did take some time also. We must remember for mountain bikes to really come up with a standard that everybody kind of followed. And, you know, the early days, there was only three, I think it was Hutchinson, Michelin, and Specialized of all people. And I think Specialized had to recall there. So really just two uh, in the UST days of tubeless at the very beginning for mountain bikes. And, um, you know, then they abandoned that standard altogether and moved on to something else. And Stan came along and did his thing. And then kind of somehow we ended up where we are. But, um, I feel like we're kind of in the mid phase with road tubeless right now. And we haven't quite gotten to the end of the, yeah. of the game yet. So, um, I'm going to stay and stick around till the game kind of concludes. But, uh, <laughs> it's something, it's something I would like to be able to recommend more confidently than I am recommending it now, but I'm yes. still recommending it. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you're probably in the same boat as me, which is I use it, but don't necessarily recommend it. Yeah, exactly. And that's not really the way I want things to be like, because when people see my bike and I'm like, yeah, but you shouldn't do it because you're not ready for that. Yeah. It's like, eh, that doesn't really. Yeah, you kind of like, you, customers, not. you kind of judge based on like the condition of their chain, whether they're suitable yes. for tubeless <laughs> or not. Yes, exactly. Yeah, how much gunk is on their rear derailleur pulleys? And if, if none, then they can have tubeless. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was also for, a number of reasons, maybe the biggest one being because I'm sort of a nerd and like to be kind of exclusive about my bike setup was running tubulars for most of my life. And I still have some bikes with tubulars on them now and I love them, but uh, I definitely never recommend them to anybody else, you know, and tubeless is not quite to the level of tediousness when it goes south as tubulars, but uh, it's kind of there. Yeah. It's kind of a mess. And it seems like it, it's, it's advertised and talked about like it's the solution to all the problems, but it really just opens a whole other can of worms that didn't exist before. So it's like, yeah, um, not sure if I am really fully convinced yet, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. Jury's out on tubeless road, but yeah. 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 No, I think, I think we're exact same, which is just really like it in theory. Just wish it were more user friendly, but, uh, Oh uh, well, we'll keep whinging about this one. It's it's a it's a good uh, it's a good one to complain about, especially as more bikes come stock with tubeless uh, on the road. And yeah, I I think there's there's certainly room for improvement still. So yes, um, yes. but it's it's clearly industry is pushing in this direction. So for sure. 
Uh, on my mind, Brad, you might you might get a kick out of this. Uh, it's probably a bit of a running joke on the podcast now because it's probably the fourth or fifth time I've mentioned this. But um, still, chain breakers. I'm still thinking about chain breakers. And my most recent thought is uh, I've been using the Shimano TLCN29, I think it is, which is like, it's kind of like their consumer, like their, their plastic chain breaker, which is like that, that mid-range. Um, it's quite small. It's made of plastic. It's got a, a little handle. Um, and I've been using that lately. And what's been surprising me is that it's despite being smaller in size, it actually feels like it takes less force to use than pretty much any professional massive handled chain breaker <laughs> out there. No kidding. Like it, it kind of just like pops the rivet with less feedback through the hands. And that has sent me down a rabbit hole of trying to like, uh, I've been most recently using an car oil filter wrench as like a handle to turn the chain breaker handle with okay. the, the base of the chain breaker mounted in a vice. And then I've been using like uh-huh. a digital torque wrench on that oil filter <laughs> wrench to measure like peak torque. This is why I love you. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and like surprisingly, it seems from what I can tell, I need to do more repeated tests. I'm, I'm probably going to come up with a better handle solution than the oil okay. filter wrench. But sure. from what I can tell is like that little plastic mid-range Shimano Chainbreaker requires less force than even Shimano's own professional Chainbreaker. Then you have to do a, a subsequent analysis of sort of its longevity um, and then cost per tool mm. and, multi- and extrapolate sort of like, would it be a better investment to buy six of these knowing they wear out yeah. or one professional one? And it's, you know, so that's like some compl- some complicated calculus you have to do on that one i think yeah but yeah um but that's very interesting i haven't used that particular one i've actually um I, so i know that we've talked about my my drawer foam which is was a long process and we can skip over the details but i have three chain breakers in my drawer because uh, again i like to think i'm thoughtful and well prepared but as i got in, back into the shop as my primary um function i've you know and as we mentioned at the start of the podcast i was working on just one bicycle for a number of years and um so i have i have two abbey decades uh one with the mid plate for axis chains and one with the mid plate for like every other kind of modern drivetrain but it doesn't work on like eight speed stuff you know so i have a pedro's one for that yeah. too because I don't want to switch the mid plate and one Abbey decade tool. Cause that's like kind of annoying when you're like, you know, in the middle of yeah. a job or whatever. And, um, I'm lucky enough to have had two in the first place, uh, to have one at home and one in my travel box, but, mm-hmm. uh, blah, blah, blah. I realized I didn't even realize really, or didn't even think about it, uh, as not being compatible with some of the mid Z kind of bikes that you see in the bike shop mm-hmm. relative, relatively frequently. Um, you know, so uh, at least half the time I'm in there, I'm using this Pedro's one because the other two, <laughs> you know, super deluxe Abbey uh, yeah. fanciest chain tools ever, blah blah blah, don't even work on um, <laughs> on on these cheaper bikes. And maybe that's by design. You know, maybe that's kind of what Jason wanted. He's like, if, if you're working on those, then who cares? Yeah, it makes it more. 
precise for the the modern stuff where the precision is yeah. needed but yeah, exactly exactly limiting. but um, yeah. I was sort of surprised and I'm, I haven't broached the subject yet because as generous and thoughtful and whatever as Jason is and has been to me I don't want to put another project on his lap but uh, I'd like to see a mid plate maybe for like those older ones that has just a little bit more clearance between the back plate of the chain tool where the chain kind of rests and you push against um, and where it's held by the the mid plate where it sort of sits in between the links of the chain. There's just not enough clearance there to wedge a slightly wider spec chain from like a nine or eight speed or lower even sometimes. Um, so that was a funny revelation from my side, but I haven't yet applied a torque wrench and uh, various methods for capturing exactly how much force I'm using because it, didn't really it didn't really seem like it was so much that it was a problem so I was willing to accept what I what I was handed no no um I I, I would like to think I'm the only person wasting time on this this non-problem <laughs> I I would expect that you might be but um yeah nevertheless I'm glad you're doing it because I love to hear about these things yeah and also also not have to go through the struggle of actually performing the task but, yeah. myself to find out yeah but it's it's so it's it's just it's racking my brain at the moment because this this small little Shimano is outperforming much larger chain breakers and I'm not sure why because the way it holds the the plates is much the same and the way the pin and the pin works on a bearing is much the same uh and yeah I'm I'm thinking there's maybe like some like the equivalent of ride quality in the in the plastic design that it's like maybe the flex is is leading to is leading to a, a better experience. So yeah, yeah, you're getting some damping, some damping quality out of the plastic. Exactly. Somehow. Exactly. Yeah. Micro micro vibrations. Yeah. Yeah. Been hearing about it for years, but uh, maybe <laughs> finally this is the first time it's actually existed in real life in the bike industry. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, well, I'll, that's a I'll stay tuned for your uh, analysis and subsequent results. So I'm excited. Thanks, Brad. And good good luck. Thank you. All right, let's uh, let's jump into our PSA. I don't think we've had one of these for a few weeks, and uh, I'm keen to talk about something, Brad. You might have been seeing a bunch lately, and and anyone that works in a shop probably does as well. Uh, the PSA is to check your mechanical shifter cables, specifically when <laughs> you're running drop bar shifters. Yeah, what's this all yes. about? Well, uh, it's it's a it's a valid PSA. First of all. Um, the the where I'm seeing it the most, what well, where I'm seeing problems the most from not having checked it uh, is in the sort of latest couple of generations of Shimano road shifters in particular, um, where if you're familiar with how the cables route, it kind of routes from the outboard facing side of each lever, uh, kind of across the front as it were, but inside obviously the hood, and then makes a very sharp bend and enters the cable housing via a little groove in the shifter body from the inside part of the hood um, and where you see the wear and the frayed cables. And then the real nightmare is actually extracting the broken head from the cable uh, is because of that sharp bend uh, and the, and the wear from just the tension on the cable as it, you know, a few thousand times of shifting back and forth, it just slowly wears one or two of those little strands of cable. And once one or two of them, get kind of bunched up in there, you start to notice some lagging or some inconsistency in the shift performance, or you lose access to a couple of gears because the bunched up cable that has already started to fray has, it won't move anymore, or you have to really force it past. And then that's when you start to 
really cause yourself some, or cause me potentially some problems because oftentimes they come to me and people think there's something wrong with the derailleur or whatever. But, you know, for, for better or worse, I've seen them so many times that I can almost stop a person in their sentence before I even look at the bike and tell them you have a broken cable in the shifter at, right at the head of the cable because of this very thing we're talking about. Um, so it's become something that I've told my other mechanics at the shop and everyone else there too, uh, you know, just recommend a, sh- a cable replacement like once a year for anyone who has these because, um, you're going to be replacing it anyway, but at least you just do it on the front end where you don't actually suffer a little bit in the process. Um, but it's, it's incredibly common. There's seemingly nothing I can do with the different types of grease or lubes used in there to mitigate the friction or the contact, uh, related wear. Uh, it's just, they just chew them right up. Yeah. Any, any, have you experimented with any different cables that have you found to make a difference or nothing? I have experimented with them. I have not found one that makes a difference. I have sort of, this is another one of the examples of things for me, but not for everyone else. Uh, Shimano's polymer coated cables, those things are like 99% of the time a problem for everybody, except if you really are careful to feed them through every little ferrule opening and don't drag an edge or catch one and tear the polymer to where it bunches up and creates those little balls of like fuzz inside um, the, the, you know, where it enters or exits from the, the cable the, housing. The bicycle fur ball. Yes, exactly. Um, so that, that alone can cause shifting problems um, before the cable itself actually starts to deteriorate from the, the, the wound element of the cable. So, uh, I like to use them because they really do feel good if you set them up just right and there's no issue there, but that's like a whole other kettle of fish. But, uh, no, to answer the, unfortunately, no, I don't have a, a fix, uh, that really has proven to be more effective than anything else, uh, other than just to re- replace them probably more often than you're used to. Back in the good old days when Shimano routed their shift cables externally and no one really liked how that looked, I guess after a while, I mean, Campy managed it without running them externally and SRAM never really ran them externally at all. But, um, when Shimano did it, I mean, those, those set during a 7700 kind of maybe the best generally agreed upon the best shifting, you know, feeling, whatever performing group of all time, it, arguable. I like it. It's very good. It doesn't look so, you know, beautiful because of the cables on the front of the bike, but, uh, never, never seen one really rip the head off a cable like that. So, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the the funny thing. It's like a lot of the stuff in the industry right now, I feel like, is answering a problem that no one specifically had necessarily, but then you showed them how it could be, and then they like kind of liked it, and then didn't really think about it too much in the way that it maybe affected the mechanical operation of the thing, and then you experience problems with the thing because it sort of is like perhaps not engineered to the level that it should be, or it's a compromise in the system to achieve a result that perhaps wasn't necessary in the first place, but now has <laughs> created problems that didn't <laughs> exist before either. So, yeah. um, yeah. So it's just like one of those things where you have to be aware of it. And if you are, it's not a big deal. And if you can do the work yourself, it's a few dollars for a cable once a year is no big deal. Of course, if you, you know, have an internally routed bike an internally routed handlebar and need to replace your cables and housing once a year and have to pay a bike shop to do it, then, you know, that could that cost you a yeah. hundred bucks for a cable replacement, yeah. you know? 
which is for some people a hard pill to swallow. And um, that's also a good sort of insight into the industry as a whole at the moment that I'm kind of feeling a little bit of misgiving toward on some topics where I feel like we've kind of engineered ourselves into a hole uh, and are now struggling to climb out of it. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I feel like there might be like a reverberation and we get a little pushback from consumers or I don't know what, but that maybe we kind of, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's so, modern modern frame design has basically it's it's almost made mechanical shifting redundant because of these these frayed issues, these these cable issues, right? Like it's it's almost forced people to accept electronic shifting for a reliable maintenance yeah. free system. I almost feel like they're sort of defaulting to everything being electronic and then reverse engineering some mechanical compatibility after the fact, you know. Uh, that that's kind of speculation, but um, an example of that one in particular that I was privy to was the UCI saying they would legalize road disc and then backpedaling from that uh, for at least a season or two. Um, at the same time, Specialized was releasing its first, the Venge Vias, if you recall, the very integrated one that was sort of the first one that had integrated everything through the bar, through the stem, in other words, no externally visible cables at all. Um, and maybe the bike itself was a bit heavy and kind of not that popular, but uh, it was the first really big mass-produced bike to do it. But then, and it was engineered as a disc-only bike initially, then the UCI backed out uh, on legalizing road disc, and they had to come up with a rim brake system that worked mm. or, or or should have worked, but should didn't really worked. work very well. Yeah. And the, if you remember those sort of batwing-looking, um, almost like a small V-brake caliper, but sort of hiding behind a fairing that was yeah, and like a the wheel cut out of the rear wheel and uh, kind of sitting behind the seat tube there, and then also like kind of tucked in behind the fork and in between the fork and down tube of the frame uh, for the front brake. And uh, man, that was such a sensitive thing. It was like you had about three millimeters of cable housing length that you could work within before it got too bunched up in the frame and the friction was too much to overcome, and it just like compromised the whole system. You couldn't you couldn't turn the bars or tilt the bars without compromising the cable housing. And if you wanted to travel to an event as, for example, a pro athlete, which uh, we had many of who wanted to do it and who, you know, who were drinking the Kool-Aid and buying the hype on aerodynamics uh, and were very excited about this bike and then receiving the bike and then riding it. And it was all set up and wonderful. And they went to their first event, got there, took it out of the bike bag and it, nothing worked at all. And, um, and that was sort of my first time. I was just like, um, are we on the right track with all of this stuff? Um, but it was, in fact, the product of a, a technology that was walked back slightly because of road disc being delayed in its legality per the UCI for road racing. And uh, so they had to put some <laughs> mechanical brakes on a bike that was never meant to have them in the first place. So I feel like uh, that specific bike is one of those bikes that is still floating around in people's ownerships and occasionally someone's actually riding it and they're almost riding it just just to make mechanics hate their life uh well whether that's why they're doing it or not that is the outcome it's the outcome yeah (laughs) yes yeah yeah uh and yeah i'm not sure the the, the owner's still choosing to use that bike uh, are necessarily trying to be vindictive about it but yeah but yeah it it just so happens to be it is and uh when i see one i mean i've they used to fly us like overnight, like 
decide fly us to a place where a triathlete would have this bike and unable to ride it and unable to compete if no one showed up to fix it. And, um, it was a, it was a, a crazy time to say the least. And, uh, the, I had the, 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 the disc fly us. Yeah. The fly us, it fly yeah. us all over the world yeah. to fix your brakes. Yeah. Nice. So, um, they probably lost all the money they would have made on that bike, just an airfare for the mechanics uh, who they paid to go and, uh, sort it out. But one of the, one of the funniest, oh, this would be my last anecdote about the Venge Vias was, um, it's a race. I think it was in Abu Dhabi or something. It was an ITU triathlon race and, I can't remember which athlete it was at the moment, but, uh, nevertheless, uh, was unable to get the Vias in working order for the race and borrowed a, like, SL4 tarmac, which was at that time, I think we were on the, the fifth generation of tarmac. So it was even an outdated version of the tarmac, uh, road bike with like <laughs> off-brand components that weren't sponsor correct and, and actually won the thing. He won the race <laughs> and the whole point of, Specialized in every company for that matter is involvement in sponsoring these athletes to do anything is to gather marketing assets to then use and sell these products. And so, um, you know, and it's rare that you win one. So when you do, it's a huge deal. And he won one. It was a huge deal, except that none of the assets were usable because he was riding an updated <laughs> product. It uh, showed nothing that could be sold. So, um, just one of the many fun moments from the circus of bike racing. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, a very good insight into some of the silly stuff that I think is. Kind of plaguing the industry. It's, some of it's innocuous. I mean, this cable thing is not the worst case scenario in terms of all of the bike quirky stuff I've seen, but it's still a pain. And to explain to somebody with their new Durace bike that, oh, by the way, you're going to have to replace these cables because just, that's just what they do and that's what happens. And I did two of them last Sunday alone. So, um, it's, it's a very real and very common thing that, uh, yeah, if you have any Shimano road shifters newer than gosh. 2016, maybe, uh, odds are you're either you've experienced this or you should, if you haven't, you better go get your cables replaced right now. So, yeah. And um, I guess, I guess for, for people that, yeah, I mean, the, the best, the best maintenance here is, is preventative. So as you said, like replace them once a year or or even more regular if, if you're riding a, a bunch of K's, uh, I would also say, um, Normally, once you're you're shifting down to the eleventh tooth, starts to get sluggish. That's that's probably mm-hmm. the earliest the earliest sign of issue, and don't leave it after that. Um, yeah, you know, if all your gears are good, and, but your eleventh tooth is all of a sudden slow to shift from your twelve down to your eleven, um, then you're you're on your way to a broken cable. So it's it's time to get it serviced immediately. Yeah, and if your shop charges by the hour, the the longer you wait, that cost is going to go up because once you have a whole like octopus of cable strands in there that's just all over the place, extracting that little cable head, yeah. it's not so easy in that shifter either. Yeah, um, there aren't too many access points to get in there, and uh, the more chewed up and wild the strands are inside, um, yeah, the, the longer that process takes. So depending on how yeah they they bill for their time, that that could add up as well. So super you, rare. I've also seen it ruin shifters like where a to. loose strand gets caught yeah. up inside of like the the teeth of the shifter and and at that point i mean those were never designed to be user serviceable and mm-hmm. uh there's there's pieces in in order to get into those shimano shifters i mean you you basically need to be a watchmaker <laughs> it's uh, exactly like yeah. it's not something i know any mechanic that's that's actively pulling apart and putting back together so it's it could be a new shifter if you if it's something that you leave exactly 
Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to to wrap things up. We'll. Uh, I'm going to save that reader question for uh, an upcoming uh, Ask a Mechanic episode, which we'll we'll do in a live audience, and and Brad will get you back for that. And uh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Have uh, have a bunch of questions. So I'll I'll save that one because it's it's a good one. It's right up your alley. But uh, okay. I, yeah. Good. We'll, I have we'll a bunch people. of answers. <laughs> <laughs> if this didn't give you some insight, I have. I could talk about this all day, and yeah. I do for the most part. Yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, that's the episode. Thank you for tuning in to Geek Warning. As a reminder, we are fully supported by memberships. You didn't hear any advertisers on this podcast because our members, they fund it. So if you love what we do on this podcast, you love our content, please support it. It means a lot to us. It lets it happen. It lets it continue. Thank you. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review and a rating. It lets fellow geeks find this podcast and enjoy it just like you do. All right, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.